Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. A lot of people don't have the opportunity or chance to win a championship. And to be able to get to that point and to realize or find out later on that someone was stealing signs and that they had the upper hand or a competitive advantage that you didn't possess, you just feel like it's a diluted championship. I heard a lot of stories behind the scenes on John Bayline's coaching style, how he treated the players, some of the drills they were going through, some of the things they were forced to do in the NBA that just wasn't NBA-like. I think John's a great coach. Obviously, he's had a lot of success at the collegiate level, but the NBA is a different animal. A lot of good being done throughout this week of All-Star Weekend uh, with raising money, players playing at a high level and being able to contribute back to society. Welcome to the Simeon Rice episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 97. This is the All-Star Break edition, but it's a sad day because All-Star Break has come to an end. Happy day for players, happy day for fans because basketball will be back. A lot of players were able to enjoy vacation. A lot of media members were able to get away, escape for a bit during a long, hectic roller coaster ride of a season. Emotionally, physically, mentally draining. Sometimes it's good to have a break, step away, and then resume activities. Jordan, you are also enjoying your activities away from All-Star break. How important is it to be able to kind of take a break, refresh, refuel, and get ready for this sprint of 26 to 28 games before the playoffs starts? CJ, I cannot think of a more important thing to do, especially with the stretch run right around the corner, then the playoffs. You want to be locked in. And I feel like I'm reading an ad for some, you know, some type of vacation, but it's true. It really makes a difference. It helps me a lot. I think mentally being able to uh, unwind, unpack your things, if you will, and then also be around family and not have the pressure of, I got to get to this meeting, that meeting. I have to file this story right now. And, I, and I, I'm still trying to get a decent amount done, but it's on my own time or so, as opposed to when you are with um, or when you are on a regular schedule and you're not necessarily um, able to enjoy things quite as much. You know, you're at the mercy of a schedule that is great, but it just doesn't allow for, um, you know, fully always being able to embrace the, the moment at hand. So I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. We're actually uh, in the Caribbean, the British Virgin Islands, and uh, the weather's great, water's beautiful, you know, all kinds of water activities, and just great time with the family. Good food, good wine, which we'll hit on later. So really, really nice. And you weren't too far off in the Bahamas. How was it for you? It was nice. It was a great escape. I was out in the Bahamas for a few days. We ended up having our player association meetings on Monday to talk about some things with the NBA, the league, and where we're trying to take this game in the future. But like you said before, great food. 80, 85-degree weather in February is unbeatable. Um Growing up in the Midwest, this is this is when you see the snow. This is when it's cold. It's rainy. So to be able to escape that, you know, have your feet in the sand, relax, take a step back, not have to set an alarm for a couple of days, and be able to allow your body and mind to kind of re-energize and refocus. It's a it's a constant grind, basically playing the game every other day or every two days uh, for about eight months. This is the first time we've had a break in 55 games plus preseason. So uh, it's it's funny how our all-star break's not in the halfway point. You know, we have 26 games left. Some teams have 28 games left. We got three back-to-backs. You basically have anywhere from three to six back-to-backs left in the last 20, 25 games. So it's, it's ironic that our all-star break's not 
at the halfway point. So guys are a little more drained, a little more tired and anxious to kind of take a step back before we jump into this sprint. What was your favorite activity? Was it the beach, uh, the, the alcohol, which I know <laughs> is, uh, is a great endeavor when uh, you're able to be on a beach. So maybe it's a little dual action there. What do you feel like was the most re-energizing? It's the combination of all of those things. You got sunlight, you got adult beverages, pina coladas, whiskey, wine, whatever you whatever you uh, like to indulge upon. Um, I had a yacht for a day, so we were able to go out on the water, little water slides, um, things like that, kind of float and just hang out uh, around some of those other islands off the off the coast of the Bahamas. It's just nice to be able to mentally just escape. No pounding on your knees, no running, no lifting weights. You kind of take a step back and break and allow your body to recover and allow your body to enjoy, you know, being sore. You know, you go through this fight or flight mode all season where you're sore, you recover, you play a game, you're sore, you play a game, you're sore, you play through it. To actually allow your body to be sore, to recover, kind of figure out where the aches and pains are, what you have to kind of tighten up for this last uh, sprint. And then you get back in the gym and tighten up, uh, get back to lifting weights, get back to uh, body maintenance and making sure that you're able to withstand and hold up for for the uh, final 26 games. But I really enjoyed all, all facets of it, being able to spend time with family, being able to spend time with my girl, being able to see some old teammates, got to kick with Mason Plumley, see some of the uh, guys I played with in the past. Um, it's always nice to kind of rekindle that. I got to play a little bit of blackjack, won some money at the casino. Uh, so there was like a lot of things that I really enjoyed and now I'm ready to get back to work. <laughs> I just, I try to imagine you in the casino playing. What's your uh, strategy in that game? Are you an aggressive player? Are you not aggressive? How do you? I am extremely aggressive, but I play by the book. So, I mean, usually I hit, I hit 15, 16. Oh, wow. Uh, you got what bus cards, what two, three, four, two, three, four, five, six. The book says you're supposed to hit, so you got to keep it consistent. Two, three, four, five, six. I usually double on 11s. I split the sevens against, uh, I can't remember, depending on what, what card the, the dealer's showing, you split the sevens. Uh, I just I usually play by the book, but I'm aggressive. If there's a time for me to double, I double. If I need to split, I split. Sometimes, you know, that split can be, you split the sevens and then they give you another seven. So you got three splits. And maybe it's a high hand. Maybe I'm playing high rollers hands where... You know, it's not twenty twenty five dollars. We we up in the hundreds, and then you get a split, and then you get another split, and you double down. And next thing you know, you got a big boy hand, and uh, those can be very interesting hands depending <laughs> on what the dealer draws. But especially when there's multiple adult beverages in play. Yeah, but I don't gamble under the influence. I gamble sober. I gamble sober. Okay. I want to know exactly what I'm doing. Uh, I want to be conscious of every decision I make. So I usually gamble sober. I drink water. Um, and I, it's paid off for me. I have gambled uh, under the influence of a couple beverages and I've had success and failures. But the funny part is when the dealer has a bus car, you know, dealer shows face of six and you stay on a 12. You got 12, so you stay home. And they mess around and draw a 21 on your 12. Like that happened two times. They, they drew, they ended up hitting, hitting soft. We was playing uh, hit on soft 17s. They ended up drawing and getting a 21, a 20 and a 19 on six, five and four. Wow. And I stayed home. Just, you know, the book, the book says you stay home and uh, it was costly at times, but you enjoy the ride. You play the odds and you put your high hands in when you need to. And hopefully you win and get out of there. There's nothing like uh, summer league when you have the barrage of young players, 19 to 21, 22, all playing with real money for the first time. And you walk through the casino, <laughs> you know, and it's like so, some guys are so rattled. Some guys are so fired up, but it's all different emotions because most of these guys haven't had that kind of money and they certainly haven't gambled it. Right. And but all of a sudden it's kind of like, you know, one upping someone else and you're trying to show that like you got the big balls. And that's like my out of all the things in Summer League, that might be one of my favorites. Uh, actually, that what would what would you do? You have a, a Summer League memory. This is a little bit of a tangent, but do you have a Summer League memory at, at one of the casinos for the first time playing with real money? Yeah, I'm very fiscally responsible. I'm frugal, so I'll be at the. I'll be trying to find fifteen dollar hands, fifteen dollar tables, twenty five dollar tables. And early in my career, rarely did I, you know, like to double or split or 
if I if I won 75, 80 bucks, I was trying to walk away, you know what I mean, at the table. Now I'll go to the table to set amount of money that I plan on gambling with for the week or for the day or whatever. You have a safe a safe number in your head that you're willing to gamble with and whatever you win, you kind of put that to the right and now you're just playing with the money you won. So I'm still playing with house money from you know, national championship money from a couple of years ago. <laughs> shout out, shout out to Clemson and in Alabama for for all the money, all the money they've been able to help me win. But one of my favorite Vegas casino stories is a few years ago I was in I was in Vegas. I think I was in Aria, and um, I think it was during the the summer league or when we had PA meetings, or whatever. And like all the NBA players were there, Jalen Brown, like a lot of the younger guys were there, and then Lou Williams. Lou Williams was there, and they were playing roulette. And I had played roulette before. I mean, I had I had a good amount of money um, based on like where I was at in my career. But I would just play like black, red. You know, maybe put something on number three. Lou Williams would play the ta- he would play the middle of the tables, and he would always put something on twenty three. Right. I watched him hit with like 100 or 200 on 23 on just the number 23. How many times did he hit? (laughs) And, you know, those odd that payout is crazy. Like if you hit a number, the payout is crazy. And I watched him play for like, I don't know, a few minutes and he would put money on 23 every time. And 23 hit like twice within like 10 minutes. Oh, my God. That's and he was putting what a hundred? It was at least a hundred. It was at least a hundred multiple times on twenty three, and then he hit like twice. Damn! I don't. I forget what the payout is. I forget what Lou the payout Will? is, but it's a lot. Yo, Lou Will really is a bucket. He's a bucket, and I was just like the confidence for him to just put the bread on twenty three, and then for it to hit consecutively. I was like, he just he just a lucky dude. Well, it's thirty five to one for a number. So if he was putting a hundred, and he hit that twice, that's seven grand, and I'm sure he's had days and and moments where he's put more so Lou Will is a bucket regardless of where he goes yeah that's and that's seven grand in like three minutes <laughs> in like a five minute span we gotta get to the casino with Lou Will is what it sounds like yeah I've also seen my brother win in roulette my brother won about 15 in roulette when we went on our boys trip a few years ago to Vegas and uh he actually didn't make it out to the club so we were all going <laughs> we were all supposed to go out and uh, we gamble during the day and then we go out at night and uh, we were gambling or whatever, and he was rolling. He said, I'm not leaving. I'll meet y'all there. And he ended up meeting us at the club later, but he didn't leave with us because he was on the table for about eight hours. He got a real work day in. Oh, he was, he was working. He was With breaks, obviously, to eat. To eat. <laughs> he was eating and using the bathroom, but that was his only breaks. He got a real work day shift in, but it was funny. It was a good time. I, lo- I love that story. I love the Lou Will story, especially. That's great. Um, so... There's been some really interesting developments in uh, in sports over the last couple of weeks or so, and I think the most polarizing one has been Major League Baseball. And um, for those who haven't paid attention, you have the Stein the sign stealing incident with the Astros that helped them win one World Series, helped Jose Altuve win an MVP, and I'm just curious if we can try to find a correlation to basketball you said beforehand like you know is is there really i guess there really isn't one with basketball my i wonder for you like what would it be like if someone if another team had an overhead view of your timeouts and they were able to see what like what you guys were drawing up for plays during the timeouts i don't think that would be as beneficial as stealing signs and knowing what which pitch was coming every single time but like if you're if you start to circumvent the rules and you know you're being cheated, uh, as LeBron referred to as as Aaron Judge referred to, um, what would your take be, CJ? Um, considering it starts to affect your livelihood, you're sick because a lot of people don't have the opportunity or chance to win a championship and to be able to get to that point and to to realize or find out that later on that someone was stealing signs and that they had the upper hand or a competitive advantage that you didn't possess. Uh, you you just feel like it's it's a diluted championship. You feel like they obviously you still have to have the skill and ability to be able to hit the ball and, and do those things in field, obviously, and, and play well. But to know what pitch is coming before they come and to be a great hitter, a great player, it's it's too much of an advantage. And you've heard some other players talking about how some of the best hitters in the in the world knew the pitch that was coming before it came. You know, they'd hit a hundred 
100, 200 home runs because that's how skilled they are. That's how powerful they are. And the hand-eye coordination is unbelievable. But to be able to compare it to basketball, it's just too hard because, for one, when you come out of timeouts, a lot of times, based on how the team is lined up or if you've watched film, your, your coaches have really studied them, you, you know what's coming usually. It's just a matter of stopping it. There's counters and things like that. But we all know each other's plays in the NBA. Um, but we're just such great players. It doesn't doesn't really matter. It's hard to, it's still hard to stop them. There's counters you can slip. Right. There's adjustments you can make mid-play to kind of give yourself an advantage. But in baseball, it's just pitch, catch, hit, mm-hmm. field. Like, that's it. Those are the only objectives of the game. And the best advantage you have as a pitcher is to be able to to shield your pitch before it happens. Like, obviously, as the, as the ball's coming, they can kind of guess if it's a slider, a curve, a change, a fastball. But to know in advance gives you, like... The, the the super, the highest of upper hands because now you know, like, based on the release point, like, if it's if the ball's, if it's a curve and it's a righty picture and you're a righty, you know the ball's going away from you. You know what I mean? Like, you, you have, like, location of where the ball's going. If it's a fastball and the ball's coming straight down the pipe, you know, or if it's inside, you know it's not changing. You know, all right, this is a fastball. Let me get my hand eye ready. Let me swing quicker. Let me get, let me turn this over. So there's a lot of things that you can't really compare from a sports standpoint um, because that's the whole game. For, for us in basketball, like there's no way to put the ball in the hole right. better. You just either have it or you don't. Like <laughs> those are the advantages. You either make the shot or you don't. Uh, that's it. Maybe you get more free throws or, or something like that, but you still have to be able to make the shot. What if we like slanted the rim up an inch, <laughs> you know, for one team? I mean, in theory, wouldn't that, wouldn't, wouldn't that create a significant disadvantage? Yeah. I mean, I think having one basket higher or lower than the other, um, what, deflate gate, like what, deflating the balls, like the, maybe the balls don't bounce like the, the way they're supposed to. But then the only problem with that is that we play with the same basketball. So the advantage or disadvantage goes to both teams because you have to switch baskets at half, at, after uh, what? After halftime, you switch baskets. Maybe the only way to compare it is by saying, like, you would have the referees cheat. I mean, maybe that's the only comparison. I mean, basically, one it has to be one-way cheating. One-way cheating. Right, exactly. <laughs> but when I think about this, I, I think, CJ, and, and, and I don't know, maybe you tell me if I'm being dramatic, but I think it's one of the most disgraceful instances in sports, let alone baseball. And I don't think we've seen a team that has cheated and created such a stain on the league, on every other team, since the 1919 Black Sox. Like, I, I've actually gone through and, and really thought about the steroids era. But the, the, as bad as that was, you had players from different teams. Uh, and I know baseball has long been associated with cheating. But every step of the way is Commissioner Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred has... is. He has, um, he has handled the situation inappropriately and has been unable to see it through the lens of the fans who are unanimously looking at this with disgust and contempt. Uh, I think he, he has no sensitivity, see, the commissioner, to every other major league player. You know, Aaron Judge, who narrowly lost the MVP two years ago to Jose Altuve, he says that they should take it from him, and he's right. You know, the which what really unfortunate to me is like you're 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 appeasing the union by not penalizing the players. So the players essentially accepted a plea deal, and they're not going to get suspended. Uh, and I think baseball popularity, CJ, is already waning because it's an older sport. The generation that watches it is older, and this was a great opportunity for the commissioner to do the right thing. And he, every step of the way, like I said, he's done the wrong thing. There's no leadership. There's no understanding of what it means to be a competitor. And I think it's an everlasting stain on baseball because he's been complicit in this entire situation. And I'm sad as someone who isn't even really like a huge baseball fan, CJ. I'm just sad as a sports fan, especially when you consider what it's taken away from the Dodgers who they beat in the World Series and uh, and the Yankees, for example, who they just beat in the ALCS. Yeah, I know more specifically the players that lost to them are hot. 
because they had a chance at potentially winning um, a championship. And, you know, originally thought that they just lost fair and square, but now to find out that they were cheated, they were hoodwinked, they were bamboozled, I think it, it just makes matters worse. Uh, and the feelings they have towards those players. What's the over-under on some of those players being thrown at all all season long? In terms of being <laughs> thrown at, CJ, especially the marquee players like an Altuve, like a George Springer, uh, Carlos Correa, oh, I think it's going to be three times, four times as much as the average player. Easy. And you know what's crazy? I think what they did is... It's terrible. It's it's cheating the game. And we have someone who's banned from baseball for simply betting on the game. Wasn't changing the outcomes. Was simply betting on the game as a legend and has been banned from the sport. What they've done, I think, is worse than betting on the sport. Well, I would take you a step further. What are your, I what are your totally thoughts? agree. And I would take it a step further and say that, that Rob Manfred should be out of a job but not allowed to work in baseball. Like, let's ban his ass. <laughs> because... He, he was complicit in this whole thing, you know? And I just, I think it's, I think it's really, really unfortunate and really sad. And, and you hit it, as you would say, on the head, the nail on the head. It's the players that lost. Those are the ones that I feel the worst for. I feel badly for all the players against Houston who played the Astros and lost. But I especially feel badly, for, for example, for the Dodgers. Um, who you know haven't won a World Series in decades and lost, and I think you it's very easy to to sit back and we can criticize who should have known and they should have done this, but now we're at this position, and and the the commissioner is, has been completely complicit, uh, and I think he when he did you see he came out and said he said the trophy really is only a piece of metal. Wow, that's what the commissioner said? Exactly. Then he apologized, but he had the goal to come out and say, you know, at the end of the day, it's really just a piece of metal. Some legacies are defined by that. That piece of metal, bro, is what your entire sport is played for. Exactly. You know, having a ring, having an opportunity to call yourself a world champion. Okay, so you asked if... Well, let me double down to... to double down on this conversation and say... You asked me about guys getting thrown at. What what can the league do to to prevent that or to eradicate it? Man, I don't know. I think the fact that they gave them immunity hurts. It hurts the, uh, the reputation of the MLB because there's no real punishments that were given out to players for for these actions. I think they need to set a precedent that hey, like this is unacceptable. There's a no a no tolerance policy for these acts, these behaviors, because at the end of the day, it was just like they got a slap on the wrist. All they had to do was tell the truth for nothing to happen, which is kind of bad. And they've lied about it. First, I heard about a tattoo. Then you can see him kind of mouthing, like, don't take off my jersey. And I think uh, it's obvious that a lot happened behind closed doors. And I just wonder if they told all them, if they told their full truths. Because if this if this got out and they admitted to certain parts of it, what else do you think they were doing to try to get an upper up, upper hand? Exactly. At the very least, put an asterisk by that 2017 World Series championship. And and at some point, we have to consider whether or not it should just be eradicated as a whole. Yeah, it's something that you have to consider. You look at other uh, sports. You look at college basketball. A lot of these teams are forced to vacate championships when scandals break out or when things happen, maybe recruiting violations or they find out players were paid. They're forced to vacate their championships. In this instance, they literally cheated to win a championship and are still able to just, you know, go go around like nothing happened. CJ, one of the interesting parts about the Astros is Clayton Kershaw, because if you look at his splits, um, when he pitches in Houston compared to everywhere else it's awful and he's been criticized heavily criticized much maligned for not being a good world series pitcher right and if you go back and actually see what happened you can see that because of the signs being stolen his numbers his era his whip everything is significantly inflated from the world series in 2017 and he has been very vocal about the astros not being very contrite and not being remorseful, and I don't blame him. And I think it's very clear that the Astros would not have won 
the 2017 World Series. They would not have been in the World Series this year and have beaten the Yankees. And Jose Altuve wouldn't have narrowly edged Aaron Judge for the MVP two years ago if it wasn't for the cheating. And if you're unable to beat good teams in the playoffs, specifically if you're unable to pitch in Houston, you know, what does that say about your future? It's terrible for the sports world to see. Um, I will continue to watch baseball on and off, as I always do, depending on who's playing, depending on the time of the year and what's going on in my life and my schedule. Um, But with that being said, it's hard to really watch and celebrate certain teams based on, on those actions because it's something you can never really forget. I'm sure the players that have played against them and those teams will never really forget, you know, what happened, especially since they feel like they could have potentially won a championship if they weren't cheated. Don't go anywhere because after the break, John Beeline is officially stepping down as the Cavaliers head coach. We'll discuss that and much more when we come back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. CJ, one team that's not winning a championship anytime soon is the Cleveland Cavaliers. They are 14 and 40. <laughs> wow, what a transition. <laughs> I'm not even trying to fire shots. I'm just reflecting on the situation that they have. 14 and 40, worst record in the league. Um, or, sorry, worst record in the East, second worst in the NBA. And I didn't really get or understand the John Beeline hire in the first place. Uh, the former Michigan coach, he had a five-year contract with Cleveland making more than $4 million a season. Uh, He is leaving the Cavaliers, and uh, they are promoting associate head coach Jamie Bickerstaff to become the full-time head coach. Uh, But the big story here, CJ, is Beeline had to apologize to his team, and we talked about this a little bit after a January team meeting in which he referred to his players as, quote, no longer playing as a bunch of thugs. (laughs) What was your take on, on this? Because it never really seemed to get off the ground this higher. And uh, and obviously, that was the beginning of the end when John Beeline said that to his team. That was definitely the beginning to the end. I heard a lot of stories um, behind the scenes on uh, John Beeline's coaching style, how he treated the players, some of the drills they were going through, some of the things they uh, were forced to do in the NBA that just wasn't NBA-like. I think John's a great coach. Obviously, he's had a lot of success at the collegiate level, but the NBA is a different animal. It's completely different players, different personalities, guys who are at different stages in their career and are used to being treated a certain way. And I think it was just too much of an adjustment for him. And I think he realized it early on and has decided to kind of move forward. And I think the players are probably relieved based on, you know, some of the stuff you're seeing and reading about now. Uh, multiple uh, players playing Bone Thugs and Harmony, Thuggish Ruggish Bone and Tupac's Thugs Mansion. Uh, it's basically petty shots, trick daddy, I'm a thug. Uh <laughs> Other players blasted songs with the word thug loudly during workouts in the facility. Players did this to make light of a tough situation, but in reality, you could tell they were taking shots at him and and felt extremely disrespected, um, especially uh, the minority players, just because of the the tone of the word thug and how it was directed towards them. Um, I think... I think the Cavs are in a tough situation. They're in a tough spot. Obviously, like you said before, uh, worst record in the Eastern Conference, second worst in the NBA, only ahead of the Warriors. Um, a lot of young talent, uh, a city that's hungry for basketball, a state that loves sports in general. Uh, it's only a matter of time before they kind of right some of their wrongs and, and head in the right direction. And I think the fact that Bickerstaff's going to take over uh, could be beneficial for them uh, yeah. because it gives them like a fresh new face and kind of a fresh new start to, to kind of put some of the things they've gone through in the past uh, in the past. Yeah, to your point, CJ, about tone and the NBA being a totally different situation, it's not the pressure 
like I, I've 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 talked about this a lot. It's not the pressure necessarily, although there is more. It's the fact that you're you're dealing with different age groups and 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 guys in totally different stages of your of their careers. You have players on rookie deals who are trying to make a name for themselves. You have mid-level guys. You have veterans who are trying to squeeze out that final year or two. And Beeline was never able to relate. To my understanding, based on conversations, is that he never really took the time and probably didn't even understand how to have those conversations in the first place with those players. <laughs> as, I, as I said many, many times, you hit the nail right on the head. He was just so unaccustomed to being in this type of environment. He's used to coaching 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old men who are trying to become pros. A lot of them end up not becoming professional athletes, whereas in the NBA, you have a bunch of grown men from different walks of life, some 18-year-olds, some 32-year-olds, uh, a wide range of players, obviously from different demographics, different backgrounds. You haven't recruited them. Uh, they're already there. They've already established themselves. Some of them are trying to establish themselves, but there's not a prior relationship. Whereas in college basketball, you, you do the in-house visits, you recruit the kids, you talk to them every day. You kind of go through this process of mentoring, almost being a father-like figure for a lot of these uh, young college athletes. And then they kind of become men on the way out as juniors and seniors and leave. You have men who are already established mentally. They know who they are uh, physically. Their games are evolving constantly depending on the stage of their career. And they're just used to things being done a certain way. They're professionals. They're paid more than the coach, well, most of the players at least, to where that power balance is different. Um, in college, the coach is the ultimate authority figure. In the NBA, the best player on the team is the ultimate authority figure. And that's just the way it is. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Yeah, and also, to your point about, um, you know, recruiting and, and the differences in college is like, one thing about Beeline was he was always able to get the most out of those three-star players, you know, guys like Trey Burke and, you know, uh, Nick Stauskas, players that weren't heavily recruited. He was able to maximize. In the NBA, you know, a lot of these guys were blue-chip players their whole careers, and they're used to being dealt with a certain way, and they're used to a coach taking a certain amount of responsibility. And for better or worse, and probably worse, Beeline never really – it's not that he didn't connect with players. He never went after guys publicly. He didn't hold players accountable. Uh, he was trying to be a player's coach, but he wasn't. So there really was – he was kind of caught in this no-man's land. And that's a very dangerous place to be uh, in the NBA when you have the types of talents, egos, money. Um, you know, in college, you're able to control it. It's It's – it's your team as the head coach. You're kind of the CEO as well. And the NBA, you know, once guys leave the facility, that's it. And, and I like Kobe Altman, the GM of the Cavs. Uh, I, I think he's he's a, he's a good guy who who's trying to do the, the right thing. But this was just not the right move from the beginning. It, it just wasn't. And, you know, there's a reason why we've seldom seen college coaches find success in the NBA. And if you go back to training camp, um, that's when I, I said the beginning of the end was the comments in January, but I think training camp was an even bigger issue. Um, you know, Darius Garland didn't really play very much. Uh, you had injuries to veteran players, key players like Kevin Love and Tristan Thompson. Uh, and then not that long after, uh, John Beeline's son was ultimately fired. It was, or, 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 or you know, or resigned. It was just really, really bad. And if you don't, if you're a college coach and you're coming in, CJ, and you don't command that respect from the beginning, you're not going to get it, and you're certainly yeah. not going to get it when you're losing. You're right. The Cavs had the right thought process behind it, you know, wanting to hire someone with experience, wanting to hire someone who had been coaching a long time, who had a good track record. But I just think they went they went the wrong route by hiring a college coach. They could have hired an NBA coach who had experience or an ex-NBA coach who had experience and was accustomed and used to dealing with a wide range uh, and variety of players. But needless to say, that chapter has been closed. Don't go anywhere, pull-up fans, because when we come back, Kyrie Irving is out for the rest of the season with a shoulder injury. We'll talk about what that means for the Nets and their future. Plus, we'll recap the NBA All-Star game. Stay tuned.
Another team that's going to have to move forward without another star player is the Brooklyn Nets. Kyrie Irving has announced that he will miss the remainder of the season with some shoulder injuries out indefinitely. Um, it's set to see a specialist. He had already missed 26 games earlier in the season with a shoulder injury. Returned to action in mid-January. Uh, what, what we got here? He scored 54 points and went over Chicago shortly after the passing of Kobe Bryant, a close, close mentor and friend of his. But the pain in his shoulder has continued to bother him. I know he had a a lower extremity injury not too long ago and was rehabbing that as well. But the shoulder ultimately is what kind of put him out. Do you think this is best case scenario for Brooklyn so that there's a healthy Kyrie and KD to start next season? What are your thoughts on on this uh, setback for the Brooklyn Nets? Well, I think everything about Kyrie has to be about next season. You know, it's the most important, the the most important component to the, to the Nets moving forward is going to be, the foundation of having Kyrie healthy, Kevin healthy from day one next season. You know, he's already missed a ton of games this year, as you alluded to. Um, and they've had some success without him. He's obviously one of the great players in basketball, but this is a long-term project CJ. And this season was about at its best was going to be about, you know, can we be competitive? Can we make a playoff? Can we make the playoffs with our young players? with Kyrie at the helm and and maybe, you know, continue to develop a culture, but it was never going to be about championship contention. So CJ, I think the Nets are in a very, very important position right now to not rush him back because next season is ultimately what matters most. Yeah, I think you're right. Obviously they would like to see him be healthy this year and continue to mesh with some of their young talent, but in a perfect world, he's able to start training camp from day one healthy with no shoulder issues, no shoulder worries, and can go out there and, and play freely. Obviously, Kevin Durant's about eight months post-Achilles and looks great in some of the individual workouts they've posted online. He's moving well. He's shooting the ball well. Um, so you look for him to return and, and kind of be in a position to be dominant or as dominant as he was um, early on in his career and you know, later on in his career with the Golden State Warriors uh, pre-injury. Another team in the league who's making a lot of noise outside of the Houston Rockets is the Los Angeles Clippers. They've picked up Reggie Jackson, and the Rockets have picked up Jeff Green and Damari Carroll. Who are you more surprised about, the movement of the Rockets or the movement of the Clippers, and which one do you think will be more beneficial to their rosters independently? Uh, CJ, I like the two moves. I think with Houston, you know, they want flexibility from from bigger forwards. Carroll and Green are both in that six eight range that can guard a few spots, make a three. I think that's valuable to them um, now more so than ever. And then Reggie Jackson with the Clippers, another you know scorer guard off the bench that can play on and off the ball. Um, he can help supplement minutes when you need uh, to rest. Patrick Beverly, who's coming back from an injury. Uh, I, I do like the moves. I don't know how much they move the needle for either team. I think they can help because both guys are all three guys are culture. Well, I should say, I think they can really help Houston green and Carroll because those are both high, high character guys, culture guys. And Jackson could fill a need again as a, as another guard off the bench. Yeah. The Clippers are loaded. They have a lot of talent. The only issue they face this season is some injuries. Uh, Paul George and Kawhi not being able to play a lot of games together, but when they have, they've been very dominant, very effective. I think Patrick Beverly's going through some injuries right now as well. They've had a lot of movement late in the season, so they got to get Morris accustomed to their team. Um, Shamit was hurt early on, so he's back in the rotation playing well. They kind of got to figure out their rotation, but they have a lot of pieces to utilize. They have a lot of different lineups they can use to finish games. I think, obviously, Reggie Jackson is going to help the Clippers, but I think part of the reason they signed him is the key, was to keep him away from the Lakers because I know the Lakers were definitely after him as well. I'm looking for another guard to pair uh, with Rondo or with LeBron. Especially in late games, you get a guy like 6'5", 6'6", who can play both sides of the ball and can spread the floor and knock down shots. That's a that's a very valuable guard and a, a player who can change a game. I think what the Rockets are doing is basically looking for mobile forwards, forwards that can play, play five but can also shoot. Uh, you get Jeff Green, who's obviously very, very good, um, underrated, uh, a key cog, a guy who can 
play a lot of different roles on the team and won't be asked to do too much, but still has the versatility to, to kind of change the team. And Damari Carroll getting the buyout from the Spurs, he wasn't really playing there. Um, he's got playoff experience. He's been on winning teams, and he can give you another 3 and D guy. I think those are two players who will help the Rockets, uh, a team that's continuing to to expand, you know, going smaller, you know, staying with that, you know, six, 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 seven, six, eight range and not playing a center. I think those teams definitely are looking to try to make a run and, and take advantage of the window of opportunity for potentially trying to win the championship. Yeah, I also, you mentioned Reggie Jackson too. The Clippers have the highest scoring bench in basketball. The Rockets have the lowest scoring bench in basketball. The Lakers would have loved to have Reggie Jackson in theory. You know, I know they wanted Darren Collison. I was never convinced that was going to happen. Uh, he's, you know, he's 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 going to stay retired. So it it makes sense that the Clippers would say, "No, we're we're playing keep away uh, with you here." But they, they their bench is so loaded, and Shaman offensively is is really really good. Um, I I I don't know how much Jackson plays, but I think he does help them. Uh, you mentioned also we talked about Jeff Green. He it is worth noting he has a ten day and. My understanding is it's all but done. It was it would have to go really poorly for him not to extend for the rest of the season um, with the uh, with the Rockets. But I don't see that happening. And he's a great locker room guy. He's someone that understands culture. That's all you really want right now if you're the Rockets. To me, you know, but like you said, a multi-positional defender, a big forward, but someone that's not going to come in and and change anything. You know, just they're going to bolster it. They're going to add to it. And I think that's what both Carroll and Green do, you know. So I think it's important. I I think it it, it matters. I agree. You talked about bolstering and making changes. The NBA decided to make some changes in the All-Star game. Oh, there's your transition. That was a pretty good transition. Also, shout out to Common. Common did a tremendous, tremendous job, not only of winning the Celebrity All-Star Game MVP, but for being the PA and announcer for the All-Star lineups and narrating a beautiful story about Chicago, among many other things, including Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. But back to the All-Star Game. I thought what they did made the game very competitive. I think that's as hard as I've seen the players play. It was more of a pickup game, uh, playing for game point in the fourth quarter with the target score, um, being a great idea to basically take whoever's leading at the end of the third quarter, add 24 points to that, and make that be the final score of the game. Guys played hard. They competed. They guarded each other. Um, Kawhi Leonard ended up winning MVP. Is this the best? Was this the best All Star game you've seen in terms of competitive nature and how hard the players played? It's the best All Star game I've ever seen for a variety of reasons, mainly because of how hard people played. You're absolutely right. Now, 92 was Magic's game when he came back uh, on the heels of his HIV announcement. I, I haven't really seen that game, so I don't really know what what type of atmosphere it was in terms of the competitiveness other than highlights. This was a game when I know the scoring was very high, but it seemed like guys played harder for longer. And that's the Elam ending. And ironically, I played in that in TBT a couple times, CJ. And it's a great format. And there's been criticism about, well, it's going to make the game too... Um, you know, finicky or it's, it's too goofy. Fans won't respond. I think fans responded because the players responded. Yeah, you're right. I think whenever there's change happening, I think if the players embrace it, if the people involved embrace it, it's only a matter of time before the fans will because at the end of the day, if it's going to create a better working environment for players, it's going to create a better, more competitive environment for players, then people are going to enjoy watching it because at the end of the day, that's what they want to see. They want to see LeBron going hard. They want to see Kyle Lowry taking charges. They want to see people competing, getting after it. Obviously, the dunks, the high-flying uh, acts of the NBA game are fun to watch. There was a lot of dunks in the first three quarters. I think there was only one or two dunks in the fourth quarter. Percentages dropped by 20-25%. There was a, a big change in how that fourth quarter went because at the end of the day, regardless of the money, people want to win. We're all competitors. We want to win. Bragging rights. Um, all that stuff kind of kicks in when it's on the line. A lot of money was raised for charity. I think Team LeBron earned $400,000 for their nominated charity of Chicago Scholars, while Giannis earned 100000 for After School Matters. So a lot of good being done uh, throughout this week of All-Star Weekend uh, with raising money, uh, players, 
playing at a high level and being, being able to contribute back to society. CJ, what did you make though of the of how Davis Anthony Davis ended the game in free throws? I, I didn't. I ironically that plays right into the the Elam ending because of the point total. But I actually had a did have a problem with that. I think in this case. It was a good ending because of how competitive it was. It was very competitive, went back and forth, back and forth. And then a guy gets fouled in the game. And that's when it comes down to skill. Being able to make a free throw is a skill. Everyone can't do it. And I think it teaches kids a valuable lesson on what to work on. You need to be able to shoot, dribble, pass, defend. But shooting is a premium. Being able to make shots is, is something that everyone can't do. So you, you need to continue to work on that skill. And I think it's a good sign that although no one wants to see the game end like that, I think in this case, the GMs, the organizations, the ownership groups, the coaching staffs were happy because it was very competitive. And I'm sure they're glad their players were able to get out of there without suffering any injuries. Did you talk to Dame at all after his performance? Uh, I texted him. We talked a little bit. Um, he was excited about it. I thought it went well. Um, the first player to ever perform uh, during All-Star. Uh, I thought he did a great job. Little Wayne came out. Jeremiah, he had two hits. Um, he was moving around a little bit, you know, showing a little stage presence. I thought it was cool. It's incredible that it he cool. did it. It really is. Especially because he didn't, you know, he wasn't healthy. So, so for him to put that aside and, and follow his other passion was remarkable. And to that point, common, man, you, you mentioned it. And he, I thought he was, it was so on point because he understands Chicago so well being from there. You saw the reaction it was a visceral reaction from everyone, uh, including Dwayne Wade, Anthony Davis, the other Chicago products that really felt connected to him. Common is one of the great people. And for him to have that stage, CJ, I thought was beautiful. And I was so excited for him. And I was excited for uh, for pull-up because Common is a pull-up product. I think we can take a lot of credit for his success as an MC the last few months. <laughs> pull-up product? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was a great all-star. And um, my last question for you is uh, because I know you weren't necessarily fully engaged in the Pino department. What was your uh, what was the best drink you had? Did you have any mai tais, any good Caribbean rum? What was your favorite? The best drink I had was this pina colada with this uh, Bahamian rum. Um, it was special. It was really, really special. It had a great taste to it. Um, obviously, they make them pretty strong. And I had some really great old fashions with some uh, some older whiskeys on tap. So I, I really enjoyed my time there. I got to kind of relax, detox, take a break. And um, we're looking forward to getting back on this grind. I know I went the whiskey route. What type of wine were you drinking? Are you drinking? Are you going to have an old-fashioned on my behalf now that I've brought it up? Well, I definitely am. And I've been drinking a tremendous amount of Pinot. Tremendous <laughs> I amount. I say tremendous. <laughs> I've been drinking a, a fair amount of Pinot. A fair amount. And, uh, and last night... One quick story, as I told you before we started recording last night, um, and I'll put this on Instagram, so this is no secret. I went to went back to um, it's called Nectar Island. It's Richard Branson's island, and he had asked me if I wanted to. He had asked me if I wanted to play tennis, and I love tennis, so I said, "Okay, yeah, let's go." So I go back to the island, and I'm assuming that there's going to be some kind of you know group lesson or you know, a few people. And he goes, uh, he said, do you want to serve? And I said, um, yeah, but, but I, he was asking me like who serves first, right? And he was doing this whole thing with the racket up or down. So I was, I was a little slow on it and I didn't really pick up on it. So when I said, yeah, I was, I, I guess I assumed that we were going to serve maybe like to practice and we jump right into a match and CJ, uh, I got fucking killed. I got destroyed. Richard Branson, who's nearing 70 years old, beat me, beat my ass uh, in basically two sets. Um, and it was one of the most surreal experiences playing tennis with him on his island next to the, next to the lemurs because they have lemurs there, rescue lemur, with all kinds of birds and 600-pound tortoises. And it was a surreal experience. And I, I, it was one of those where you're you, – you know it's not going to last too long, but so you're really trying to enjoy it. I was really trying to be in the moment, and and I was able to enjoy it. I I, I didn't think I would be able to because I thought I'd be, 
you know, a little overwhelmed by it, but I really enjoyed it. It was a great, great thing. I'm glad you were able to play. I am even happier that you lost because <laughs> it was a humbling experience. If you would have whooped him on his own island, it just wouldn't have been the same. No. I think that uh, the fact that he invited you means that he knew he, there's a good chance he was going to win. <laughs> you're such, you know what, CJ? <laughs> Your arrogance appalls me. I'm kidding, man. I'm kidding. Do you think he did his research because he? he I thought that was funny. He, he he was like, uh, let me let me he's invite like, him. I think I can take him. I'm gonna invite him up. And, he's trash. But I'm not gonna let him warm up. He probably had been there practicing all day, and then you got there, and he was just like, oh, good to see you. Yeah, I'm ready. You ready? But I was so I just, like perplexed. I didn't know what to like expect, but I certainly didn't expect a one-on-one tennis match for an hour and a half. Yeah, he got you. Literally and figuratively. And there was nobody else around. No one it was no one there was nobody it. else there. No witnesses. So basically no. you won. My parents were like, Did he have Yeah, he won, but my parents were like, Did he have like ball boys or something? And I was like, No. It was just him and I playing tennis, the lemurs watched. <laughs> the and, lemurs uh, watched. No, I'm for real. Like the lemurs, that was the that was one of the highlights of my life was being around these lemurs. I mean, they're unbelievable. And they were they were they were dialed in, they were locked in. Um, but like the part that I think was the coolest other than, I guess, I guess if you're, you know, more specifically, what was really interesting for me was like the breaks, you know, like in between when we change sides and we'd sit down for two minutes, three minutes and just talk about whatever he wanted to talk about. Cause I didn't really know what to say. <laughs> and, uh, that was really cool. Cause I felt like. I don't know. I just felt like it was a really like natural thing, right? It wasn't scripted at all. Right. It, was just it wasn't forced. Whatever he wanted to discuss. That's cool. No, it was really cool. I'm gonna. I, I want to. I really want to take you here someday. And polo fans listening, if you ever have a chance to go to Necker Island, because it is, it is anybody can go. It's uh, it's one of the most extraordinary experiences. Seventy five acres, and he's totally rebuilt it after the hurricane. Hurricane Irma three years ago. And the animals alone, but also CJ, their bars, they have like crazy open bars and you could have any Bohemian run, rum you want. I'm in. As always, I hope you enjoy your vacation, man. Tell everyone I said hello. Uh, maybe you'll get a rematch in uh, before you get off the island. Basketball is almost back, so let's get ready for it. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, radio.com backslash pull up with CJ or wherever you get your shows. And don't forget to pull up, pull up.